All right, before the lesson, we'll have our scripture reading, starting in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Now from Colossians 1. For in him, Christ, all the fulfillness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Right today, good to have uh, all of you out. Got a good house full of folks, and love the singing and all the th- all the ways that all of you have participated in our worship. Been very uplifting to me so far. Glad to have our visitors with us. Um, <clears throat> you may have noticed some of these banners around, or if you've been on our website, that that our theme this year is ministers of reconciliation, a phrase from Second Corinthians five, and. Uh, while we're going to take deeper dives over the course of the year into the different dimensions of what this ministry of reconciliation might involve, what needs to be reconciled, there are multiple facets of that, biblically speaking, that we're called to as ministers of reconciliation. But what we've been doing over the last uh, three or four weeks is to sort of do a survey, an overview, um, before we you know, kind of try to frame what we're looking at for the year, before we take these uh, deeper exploratory dives into each of these dimensions. And so uh, the little mini-series over the last three or four weeks I've called The Rudiments or the Basics of the Ministry of Reconciliation. Rudiments are just the basic principles, right? You learn the scales, uh, you know, the bass clef and the treble clef or or whatever when you're learning music. You learn uh, alphabet and phonics. Uh, and then rules of grammar and usage as you, as you grow in uh, the, in the uh, mastery of a language. Uh, you learn blocking and tackling and, uh, you know, I remember an acronym for shooting, basketball, BEEF. I don't remember what B-E-E-F was. John Duros taught me that. Um, but somebody did. Maybe it was another coach I hung out with. Anyway, you learn these rudiments, right? They're the basics. They're the fundamentals. And so what are those? Well, the gospel of Jesus, it turns out, is ultimately about reconciliation. Uh, It's the reconciliation that God makes possible through the new creation that he has launched in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And he calls us to be ministers in this reconciliation. That's what a gospel life looks like. It's It's kind of a synonym for being a follower of Jesus. We're ministers of reconciliation because the gospel is all about reconciliation. So we've discussed the vertical reconciliation between God and humans, which was necessitated by the, the, the sin that we committed, um, beginning with Adam and Eve, but been replicated in every generation since then. And that sin alienates us from God on some level. And so there's a vertical reconciliation, for lack of a better term, that the gospel addresses. But human sin also wreaks horizontal havoc, doesn't it? We all know that from experience. And so we had to look at the reconciliation between estranged people, whether they are individuals who are at odds by virtue of wrongdoing, or whether they are groups of people, people groups, tribes, races, ethnicities, nations, classes. All of that, too, in the gospel is to be reconciled. And so these are two different dimensions 
um, that we've talked about up to this point. Now today we want to look at another dimension of this ministry of, re ministry of reconciliation. And that is the reconciliation between humans and the rest of creation. The non-human creation, if you will. Are humans estranged from the non-human creation? Well, it looks like it in Genesis 3. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. So we're talking about things like all the other stuff that God made that Genesis 1 goes through. Psalm 8 and all the creation psalms talk about. The plants and animals, the soil, the water, the air we breathe, the atmosphere around us. After all, our text in 2 Corinthians 5 does say that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. So it's broad. The world is about as broad as you can get it, right? So is this part of our calling, really? It sounds ecological, doesn't it? Is that part of our calling? Should we have to be concerned about all of that stuff? And I realize, as we begin this lesson this morning, that in our current historical moment, those kinds of questions can hardly be addressed except through the lens of a very fraught political discourse, right? Instantly, your brain goes to right and left, I bet you. You start thinking blue and red, Fox and CNN, whatever, however you want to put it, right? Democrat and Republican. Can I ask you, I'm going to use all of my cred right now if I've ever gotten any with you over the years. Can, can we try to resist engaging today's lesson and this, this kinds of topics through the lens of left and right? Can we do that? Can we clear our minds, at least try, it's hard to do, it's impossible to ultimately do that because we're situated in time and space, but can we try to clear our minds and open them to the way the scriptures, the Bible, the word of God might invite us to think about such issues? Let us remember that long before our present time, people have been reading the Bible for a long time, way before you and I existed, millennia before terms like air pollution or global warming or sustainable farming or whatever it is you want to plug in there, before those terms were even coined, for millennia, the Bible has been speaking to issues of humanity's role vis-a-vis -vis the rest of creation. The Bible is hardly silent on that. So we're going to have to decide, how am I going to think about that? How am I going to engage those kinds of questions and issues? Am I going to go look at it through a biblical lens, or am I going to get my cues from the news or the culture wars or, some, or whatever I inherited? Forgetting that we're creatures of the Enlightenment and industrialization and capitalism, which frames the way we look at those issues. We're not just floating above it with a pure mind. We're all situated. Which is it going to be? Aren't Christians called to let the Word of God frame every single thing? And so I call you to do that with me today, at least taking a, a sort of a initial stab at this. So the title of today's lesson then is, is just that, you know, it's the fourth installment in this Rudiments of the Ministry of Reconciliation. And the final one in our little overview before we start drilling down a bit. And it, we're just going to call it humanity's relationship to the rest of creation. The non-human part of creation. Rocks, microbes. You know, uh, plants, animals, stars, air, all of it. Everything else God made in Genesis 1. What's our relationship to that? And let's make an honest attempt to engage these questions from the Bible out. 
not our agendas back in or our assumptions or categories or framework or loyalties back in. Let's go from the scriptures out and let the Bible itself frame how we think about it. I mean, God made it. He made us. He put us in this world. All right, first of all, let's talk about God's original plan. <clears throat> and we're going to spend a disproportionately larger amount of, of time on this first point. So don't expect the sermon today to have some symmetry because I really think it's important uh, to know what God originally intended with these kinds of things if we're going to grasp any biblical sense of what a reconciliation of that would look like. We've got to go, what was it that we diverged from that would need a reconciliation? And so spending a little more time on what God originally intended, originally planned for us in our relationship with the world around us is, is I, I think, very important. Well, the creation narratives in Genesis present humans as divinely appointed stewards of the rest of creation. So we're part of creation, and yet we're special in the sense that, as Psalm 8 puts it, a creation psalm, which really echoes Genesis 1, 26-28 almost identically, it says that God made us just a little lower than the angels or the divine, some versions say God himself, little lower than divine things, but above the rest of creation to um, steward it for him. And Genesis 1, 27 and 28, um, I, I know we talk about this all the time and we will keep on doing it um, because I, I don't, you don't get your brains theologically rewired without repetition. It's, it's, it's like muscle memory. And most of, we've inherited all kinds of things and some of them are great and some of them are not so biblical, my, myself included. And the only way to rewire ourselves theologically is to be inundated with things that are not our natural assumption from just the air we breathe and the water we, we drink culturally, and especially religious culture. So I know these, he's talked about that before, I'll keep on. I mean, on some of these things, because it related to everything. Genesis 1, 27, 28 is the paradigmatic, it's the model statement, kind of framing what a human is in the Bible. It's, it's the first time we meet humans, and what does it say? It says that God blessed the humans, male and female that he's just created, who are made in his image, and says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over, what? Everything else, the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, every living thing that moves on the earth. We're to rule over that. Now, your version may say, have dominion over, or some versions say, reign over that. But God tells humans, he makes humans, and puts them in creation to reign or rule over the rest of it. Let me emphasize, though, that this, this word, rule, have dominion, reign, does not carry implications of exploitation. I think sometimes people, Christians, have taken this as marching orders. There you go, it's mine. I can do anything I want with it. Let me ask you this. Are there good rulers and bad rulers? How many bad kings are there in Judah? How many good kings? They're all kings. <coughs> God's the ultimate ruler over the cosmos, over the universe, over the earth, and all the things, the things uh, that, that are within it. He is a benevolent ruler, and certainly he is calling us to rule in, in, in his image, to be benevolent rulers. So uh, rulers can be good and they can be evil. They can be benevolent or they can be rapacious. And obviously God wants us to be like himself, to benevolently rule or reign over his creation. A chapter later in Genesis 2, you know, there's a, a second uh, angle on creation in Genesis 2 that's pretty different from Genesis 1, kind of fleshes out, deep, dives more deeply in certain areas. And we read that God makes this <coughs> garden called Eden, 
And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. All right? Second sort of statement in the book of Genesis. If you want to know what a human being is and you're, you want to take Genesis, the Bible as your cue, not just something out in the world, but the Bible is your, going to be your, your repository of answers. And you're just getting biblical data as you go through Genesis 1. Got your lenses on, your blinders on. I just want Bible data on this. So far we know that we are here to rule the rest of creation. And now we're told that we're to work and keep the garden. There's, I don't really know of anything else in terms of a purpose statement for humans in Genesis 1 and 2 to this point. When you meet humans, that's what they are. Let that sink in. Oh, and environment stuff doesn't matter. That's what humans are in Genesis 1 and 2. Find me something else in there if you can't. I, I, don't, I, really, I looked, I didn't really see much else in terms of purpose. In Gen I'm not saying there aren't other purposes for being human. But when you first meet them, and you've got these initial statements that are supposed to frame the whole issue of what we are in relation to God and creation, it, we're, we're completely presented that way. Let's look at these words, work and keep, real quick. Work comes from the Hebrew word abad, which means, and is translated elsewhere in, the, in our Bibles, as to serve. You're serving creation. Another way to uh, translate that is to cultivate it. So it's not done. God made it just like he wanted it. It was perfect in the sense it's what he intended, but it wasn't perfect in the sense of complete because he, he made it so that he could create us out of love and invite us to do what he does with it as his image bearer in it. And that's cultivation. Keep on you know, beautifying it and, and making it a blessing. The second word, keep, Straight up means, it's from the Hebrew word uh, shamar, it means to protect or to guard, or as the NIV puts it, to take care of. Does that sound exploitive? Human beings, the primordial pair, are put in the garden with a mandate from their maker to protect or take care of creation. I don't care whether that's liberal or conservative. Do you? I want to know whether God wants me to do it. I don't care whether that is red or blue. And don't be trying to guess what I am in that. I don't fit any of our categories. They both annoy me. No end. <laughs> Honestly. And I find good things in both of them. You know, and both of them, why am I even saying both of them? They're just, that's our present historical d debate. It'll change again in 20, 30 years. It has in my lifetime. What passes for conservative and liberal has flip-flopped so many times in American history. It's, a, it's just an accident of history that we even argue the way we do half the time right now. That this issue goes with that one, really. They don't in Europe. So don't be trying to guess what I am. I don't care about all that, and I really do want us to clear our minds and let the Bible sink in. If we're Bible people, now's the time to kind of put our money where our mouth is. On sermons like this that maybe go in a different direction you've been taught to think. We are told to serve and care for or protect the garden. We're God's divine stewards over the rest of creation. And just to add to that, I think I made this point a couple weeks ago, but I think it's really fascinating that after the creation is complete, in Genesis 2, 1 through 4, it says God made it in the day he made it, that it was all complete. And then in verse 5, we have this curious statement that says this. No bush of the field. He just told us it was complete. God was done. Seventh day, boom. And then this. Kind of complete. 
No bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land, and there was no man to work the land or work the ground. He made it to need us to bring cultivation. That was always the design. We're his image bearers. We're, we're representatives. We're avatars of God. And we do what he does for creation. So God formed the land. He fashioned it so as to need human cultivation, to bring forth certain plants. That's what that text says. So, so far in the biblical story, based on just the data of Genesis 1 and 2, nothing else, God, God's reason for making humans has an awful lot to do with our role vis-a-vis -vis the earth and the well-being of his creation, right? I mean, that's, we're reading verses, straight up. Now, I want to ask you this question. What informs your notion? When you think about the relationship between us, humans, and the earth, all right, what is our relationship between humans and the earth? Before you even answer that question, I want you to think critically about where do I... What informs my answer to that question? Like, where do I get what I think about that? I have notions and concepts in my head about that. We all do. Where do they come from? And what notions do we have? <clears throat> many people, including many Christians, see the earth as just a, a repository of raw materials. That's an economics term. I learned it in economics. I majored in economics in undergrad, and I was, you know, day one, it's raw materials. There's, there's scarcity, all, all, you know that, if you've had any kind of course in that. Um, raw materials is an interesting, there's all kinds of assumptions right there. There's just packed into it. You don't just start thinking, oh, yeah, good, okay. Well, you do if you're trying to get an A. <laughs> yes, sir. Professor? But, but that, that has a lot of freight, conceptually. It's just raw materials. For us to, here's the assumption, for us to use however we see fit. And another assumption that follows closely behind that often is our actions don't really have any significant impact on its health. It's, like it's, a, it's just like it stacks of junk for us to go rearrange however we want, and we don't have to worry about that. It, it doesn't have, the assumption is, got to defend the assumption, the assumption, but the assumption often is it's just going to be fine. Willy-nilly, raw materials, I'll do what I want, what I think good, and that's... That's, that, we bring that to this question often. And a corollary is that we humans, in, 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 by turn, are not significantly shaped by the national, natural world. We don't really impact it too much, and it doesn't impact me very much. Outside myself uh, is this world, and it's sort of just the container we live in. It's an inert container, like a jar. Picture a big old glass or plastic jar, and a bunch of pebbles inside it. Um... We humans are not constituted or, or permeated or, or influenced by the creation around us. We're independent, self-contained beings. And then we don't influence the world. It's, uh, this, the, this professor at Duke, a theologian at Duke named Norman Wurzba, has written a book or several books on this kind of topic. I'll quote, it, quote him in a minute. But he talks about this, this concept of, of the world as just a container um, and he says, people who think this way think we're just sort of like pebbles in the container, right? You put some pebbles in a container. The pebbles aren't changed by being in that container. You can dump them out, put them back in, dump them a thousand times, they're still just pebbles. The container's not appreciably affected, right? They're, they're both self-contained. The place they're in and the things that go in the place are just self-contained. They, they're not permeable 
mutually. Wurzba argues that this is an unbiblical notion and that instead we should think of it more like a meshwork. That humans are in a kind of web or an intermeshed relationship with the world around them. They penetrate it, it penetrates them 24-7, for good or bad. Here he is on this issue. He says, The concept of life as a meshwork challenges the twin notions of self-contained places and self-contained organisms like us. Each organism and each thing is what it is only as a result of its entanglement within and co-development with a bewildering array of fellow creatures. A living body cannot be a single self-sourcing kind of reality because each body depends on the nurture and support of countless seen and unseen others. You're going to go to lunch today? You're going to eat a piece of the earth. Enjoy it. Hope it's tasty. Right? Well, I'm eating, plant, I'm eating vegetables and meat, which were sustained by what? How'd they get here? All the way back to soil, which came from dead you, way back when. And don't resist the kumbaya. Let's sing kumbaya then. Okay, whatever. Let's sing it. I don't care. Let's be biblical. Take this seriously. Eating, think about it, eating, drinking, touching, breathing, being inspired by people or others or something in, in, in the natural world. These are daily proof of that. The fundamental inescapable truth is that our living depends on our hosting others like the billions of microorganisms that make up our gut biome and are being hosted by them as when soil generates the plant life that we feed on. I, I, I looked this up because I, I had this in my head. I started to call Daniel, but I call him about serious stuff all the time. So, um, you know, I'm not going to die. I have this feeling in my arm. You, you all call him all the time. Um, so I didn't call him. I looked it up. And it is true, and I don't know if somebody could debate the exact statistics or, or, or numbers, but, you know, you, just you, you're, you're supposedly self-contained self. You're just a human, right? And everything else is separate out there. You alone, and me alone, and everybody in this room, and everybody on planet Earth, have in our bodies and on our bodies, literally, trillions, I'm not making up some number like Gary always accused me of, this is an actual number, trillions, plural, of bacteria, viruses, fungi, fungi, depending on where you're from, <laughs> trillions in you. In fact, there are about 40 trillion bacteria in a human body and, and about 30 million human cells in a human body. So you are actually more something else than you are you. One writer said, we're pretty much a trellis for microorganisms. We're an ecosystem. You're a walking ecosystem. Literally. Things are eating each other and all sorts of stuff on you all the time. Without them, you die and they die. Is that fair? So it's, it's just, you're a living proof that we are connected with everything and everything's connected with us. All the time. Whether we get it or care, two cents, it's happening. That's how the Lord made it. So you almost can't overstate our connection with the rest of, of, of the non-human creation. And one other way to illustrate this is to look at the word ground in, in Genesis 2 and 3. Just the word, you may have noticed before that the word ground, God's really into ground. Ground appears over and over and over in the story of humanity's creation and fall. This is in Genesis 2 and 3. Um, I counted eight times just in these two chapters. There might be one or two I missed. But the ground is doing everything. It's related to everything. 
It comes from the Hebrew word Adama. It's like Adam with a on the end. Adama means ground. Your version may say land or earth or something like that. Mine says ground. So, just real quickly, in, 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 in some of this language in Genesis 2, we read this, uh, chapter 2, verse 7 through 10, The Lord God, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, and so on. And so look at that. All the plants, all the trees come from the ground. Down in 2.19, a few verses later, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast in the field and every bird in heaven. So it's not just the plants, but the animals all came from the ground in the creation story. I mean, that's straight good biology, too, if you just allow, this is a poetic look at what we would get into the you know, mechanisms of and all the, you know, um, kind of granular view of things, right? I mean, we all know we come from soil. And it's, you know, the same elements that make up soil make up you, right? Thank the Lord for DNA, or we have a different shape and function. Because um, that's the blueprint. But look at verse 7 of chapter 2. Out of the plants, out of the ground come the plants. Out of the ground come the animals. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. So, this being that is called man in the Bible, Hebrew word Adam, Adam's name is a name, like, you know, Mike or Joe or Jim or Monty, but his name is just, his, it's man, human. Really, human's better than man. Because um, it says male and female, that's different words. God made humanity. And the word for ground is Adama. The words, <clears throat> one writer said that if it weren't co-opted, it was uh, Ian Provane, an Old Testament scholar, said if the word earthling weren't co-opted by science fiction literature and alien movies, that's really the best translation. Is because it's try in the Hebrew you would see, oh, we're earth creatures. He, humans are, here's the earth, humans earth creatures. A groundling. That, 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 that resonance is there in the Hebrew clearly, Adam and Amah, but we don't see it in English because we have different words. But then in Genesis 2.15 we read what? The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So the human creature that God chose and created to cultivate and protect his garden world, it turns out is actually part and parcel of that world. That's how closely we're related to each other. All right, that's our first point. Now let's move on a little bit more quickly. The Bible story continues. In fact, on page three of your, your, your book of Genesis, you get the problem, you know, for the, the plot of the whole Bible resolves. And that is that sin enters the garden and distorts this relationship between humans and the rest of creation. The ground, quote-unquote, that we've been talking about makes another appearance after the fall, doesn't it? In Genesis chapter 3, there we see it again. And to Adam, God says, after they have eaten of the forbidden fruit, Eve and then Adam, and they've sinned against God, the one prohibition they were allowed to eat, everything else. And through a conversation with this serpent, 
you know, they're convinced that, well, I need to eat that one thing that I don't have access to so I can be like God, have some autonomy and a sense of control and freedom, self-actualization, and all those other things we love in the West. Only it doesn't work. And he's cursing, God is, all these different parties to this sin, this rebellion against the loving maker who gave them their breath. And to Adam, he says, to the groundling, he says, cursed is the ground. This ground that sustained you, sustained you, gave you this plant life that you're eating, and later the animal life that they'll eat after the flood. All these creatures that you're in this web with, this meshwork with, it's now cursed, and guess what? It's your fault. The ground is cursed because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Tragic statement. The ground is cursed. And this shows, among other things, that, that humans in the earth, the ground, are in an extricably intertwined relationship. And to, to deny that or de-emphasize that or make fun of that is to basically square yourself off against God's design. That's just what the scriptures tell us. And I think if we think about it for a hot minute, we see that that's true. I'm hungry. I'm getting hangry. I need to eat. Well, no, you don't. You're sealed off and self-contained, right? Of course you need to eat. God cares about all this material stuff? Yeah, Jesus said feed the poor. I mean, uh, feed the hungry and, and help the poor. Why did he just go, well, just let them, tell them the spirit's all that matters. Because he made this. It's not separable like we think sometimes. There is an emphasis on spirit and flesh, but that's usually about sin and how we use created matter. He doesn't go Greek and pagan and dualistic and start going, none of that stuff I made, oh, that's all an afterthought. Just a container, just a testing room for you. Not at all what the Bible teaches. I know we, we have those assumptions. We inherited them from a long line of thinking that way since the Enlightenment. That's not what it teaches. It's not what the text would have us believe. We and the non-human part of creation are tied together for good or bad. And this explains the otherwise odd and random texts like Romans chapter 8. Where we read that all creation is groaning for the creation. Notice this here. Why would all creation be groaning because of you and me and something we did? What does it care? What does a redwood in California care about what I did over here? A mistake I made. Right? Why is creation, Paul says, longing for our coming glory? For me to be as substantive as, the God, as God wanted me to be. Not there yet, but it's coming. Why does it care? Why does creation long for the redemption of our bodies? That's what this text says. Read it with me. For the creation waits with eager longing. Rocks and trees and microbes, they're all waiting apparently. Stars, supernovae, all that. It's waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So, right here again, the fate of humans and the fate of creation are bound up together in some mysterious way. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation, the whole creation, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What is this childbirth thing? Well, the answer has already been germinated, if you will. 
You know, the new creation is in a, it's an embryonic, it's, it's an ovum that is an embryo and it's progressing. So we know where that's going. A baby will be born. There will be a birth. Right now, though, it's, it's, it's the pains. Look, look, another metaphor is first fruits in a harvest. And he says that in verse 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits. We haven't had the full harvest, but with the cross and resurrection, something is coming. The redemption of our bodies, our glorification, and with that will, 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 will come the wholeness again of creation itself, over which we were placed as stewards from the very beginning. What are some ways? We're not going to spend long on this today. But I do want you to think about this because we are going to take a deeper dive into this sort of thing, you know, a few weeks or months from now. Um, and we want to get as concrete and practical as we can with the caveat that creation care, environmentalism, ecology, all those kinds of things are uber technical. You have to have specialists for every one of them. And it's hard to get to that sometimes for all the culture war hubbub. So I, I'm, I'm grant, I know, I know that, and I'm not trying to solve all that in one, you know, hour and a half sermon, you know. Just want to wake some of y'all back up. Um, <laughs> 45-minute sermon or something like that, which means I need to get with it. Um, but real quickly on this point, just, I want you to be thinking about this. What are some ways the creation is groaning? So the Bible says it is. And it sounds like from things we did. And I, I, I have a feeling that since, you know, in the last, last two, three hundred years, we've done a lot more things with creation than they ever could have in the ancient Near East in terms of just the way we live and what we're doing. Um, what are some ways creation is groaning due to humans not fulfilling this divine creation mandate to benevolently reign over the rest of creation, to protect it, to take care of it? I'm using Bible language right there, straight out. To serve it. So in today's lesson, I'm just trying to lay a theological foundation. I'm trying to accurately situate just frame the way humans and, and, and the rest of creation should, should relate together, how we should think about that, you know, kind of at a macro level. That's, all, that's my objective today. But we do plan to revisit this later, and I hope you'll be revisiting it as you try to practically apply these things in your life right away. Just be thinking about concrete ways we've fallen short of this God-given role and ways that we can better pursue a reconciliation between humans and the non-human non creation all around us. And I do use the word reconcile here purposefully because that's precisely one of the areas in which God's new creation, initiated with Christ, uh, will bring about this reconciliation. And that's the world itself. So that's our final point then. Christ enters the world, <clears throat> dies on the cross, is resurrected from the dead, and inaugurates this new creation from which a reconciliation will happen. Everything that went awry and was alienated in the garden is going to be reconciled in Christ. Not some of it, not one part of it, all of it. So Christ reconciles this relationship, included in this, between humans and the rest of creation. So let's go back to Colossians 1 that Greg uh, read for us at this, in, during the scripture reading. Colossians 1. Let's read this. Colossians 1. 15 and 16, and then skipping down to verse 19 to 20. He, in the context Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
Firstborn of what? All creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I want you to notice two or three things about this. First of all, notice all the creation language. What does this text connect reconciliation to? And notice Christ's involvement, first of all, in creation. Maybe we don't appreciate this point as much as we should, but it says, He is the firstborn of all creation. In Him, or by Him, everything was created. Jesus is the Creator. Sometimes we have this idea that there's God and then there's Jesus. Well, Jesus isn't in God and God's Jesus. I mean, I realize that sometimes you have them kind of separated. It's very infrequent. Baptism of Jesus, it sounds more like, you know, you got the dove and you got the Father speaking and Jesus is there getting baptized. Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. And they want to stone him for it because he's claiming to be Yahweh, the eternally existent God. Um, he's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, even Father in Isaiah. So when you think of creation, don't picture Jesus as like not there, <laughs> however you picture that. I know that blows our mind, three in one. He was the creator. And John chapter 1, the gospel of John about the life of Jesus, says that not only was Jesus the creator, without him was not anything made that has been made, but that also he so valued his alienated and marred creation that Jesus decided to enter it, to become part of creation, to step into what he made. Be like if you painted something and then stepped into the painting and became part of a, the, the image, right? He steps into his creation, and we call that the incarnation. Could there be any greater evidence that matter matters than the incarnation? When I become part of it, when I become matter, <clears throat> if it doesn't even really matter, And then secondly, notice here that Christ is, all this is, this is so much, so evocative of Genesis 1. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Who else was the image of the invisible God? Adam and Eve, right. God made humanity in his image, male and female created he them. They're his image bearers. They work in creation like he did. And now we're told that Jesus, you know, Adam abdicated his responsibility. He botched it. God put him over creation, but his sin alienated humanity from creation. And Jesus is this new Adam, this new image bearer of the invisible God who enters his creation and comes to reconcile it back to God. And thirdly, I want you to notice about this text how inclusive, how exhaustive this reconciliation associated with the cross of Christ is. We often think of the cross as just about me getting saved. It is that. We talked about that two weeks ago. That's the hub of the whole thing is individuals getting right with God. That, that reconciliation. But you can't have that without having people-to-people -people reconciliation. God said, love me, and the second commandment is love your neighbor. And it better cross these borders we've created, these boundaries of my kind of person and your kind of... That we're all God's kind of people. We talked about that last week. See those sermons if you want to. This is the third one in the series. The whole rest of creation, it matters too. And we ma part of how we matter is that we recognize that matter does indeed matter. Um, 
how extensive is this reconciliation? Through Jesus, the gospel involved God through Jesus reconciling to himself all things. In case that's not clear and exhaustive enough, this appositional phrase, followed in comma, whether on earth or in heaven. So, what falls outside of that category? All things. If it's in heaven, in the heavens or on earth, it all needs reconciling. Because it all, like the creation in Romans 8, is groaning. It all went off the rails with us. Because we were charged to be the crown of creation, its keepers, its husbandmen, God's co-rulers, to reign with Him over it. And sin botches it all. It's a very holistic vision the Bible gets us of everything. It's not just a drama about you getting saved and then carrying on with your regular story in the world like nothing else changes. And that's actually how a lot of Christians live. They don't live an ounce different from anybody else around them. With regard to creation, with regard to other people, social racism problems, social problems, strife, ah, that's not about, that's politics. Business, you can be as unethical as you want, ah, that's business. Jesus is either the King of kings and Lord of lords or he's not. And if he's the King of kings and Lord of lords, there's no place on the, on, in the cosmos that doesn't acknowledge him as Lord. Revelation 21 and 22 is a vision, John's vision. It's an apocalyptic vision of how all these things finally do come to pass. And I want you to notice that it's pretty much a reprise of the Garden of Eden. We've read this so many times, I'm not going to read it again right now, because we are close to out of time here, but it's the new heavens and new earth. That's what John's seeing, what Isaiah prophesied. Got the new Jerusalem descending, who is the bride of Christ. Sin and death are no longer. God is finally dwelling or tabernacling with His people. And the, the resurrected Lamb is there, ruling with God over everything. All the nations are coming to worship. Like That's why we have the Isaiah passage today. The key part is that Israel was to be a light to the nations. Like the gospel is housed in Israel, in a sense, embryonically for a while. We're trying to you know, connect the whole story with key Bible passages to the whole thing. But anyway, um, look at this. The new heavens, new earth is going to have the river that the Garden of Eden had. It's got the tree of life makes another appearance. Only now, its leaves and its fruit are nourishing and healing the nations. It's not a picture of, oh, they can't eat that, we better put them outside. It's, it's life-giving, eternally so. Why? What's changed? Because the curse is gone. Verse 3 says, No longer in the new heavens new earth will there be anything accursed. Or your version may say, The curse is no longer. The ground's not cursed. We're not cursed. Everything is reconciled to God, the hub. To Jesus, the hub. So, with all that under our belts now, let's revisit our passage. God was reconciling the world. That's the Greek word cosmos. That means the universe. To himself. But look at the phrase above it that I've highlighted in yellow. God gave us this ministry of reconciliation. Our ministry of reconciliation is as broad as God's is. And we don't really have a right to limit it where God hasn't. What if I said to you, you know, I'm going to do everything about the ministry. I want to be a minister of reconciliation. I love the, the earth. 
and take care of that and try to reconcile that. I love other people and social problems, racial things are a big problem for me. So I'm going to work on people groups getting reconciled and estranged individuals getting back together. But I don't really like the sin part about individuals being estranged from God. I'm going to cut that part off. I don't want to talk about sin, salvation, and morality and all that. There's whole wings of Christian theology doing just that today. tend to be more liberal in our present day taxonomy, which will change in a hot minute. Um, and then you got others going, I don't need to care about anything else except whether I got saved. And I'm basically going to be as materialistic as anybody else and as oblivious to problems out beside me, you know, that are all around me. I'm just going to go get my money and have my fun and I'm going to be happy because I got saved. Otherwise, living like anybody. We have no right to limit the ministry of reconciliation where God has not limited it. It's as broad as God says it is. Amen? I just don't, that to me seems like just inarguable. Um, so I'm sorry if I sound a little frustrated. I kind of am uh, with that. I, what do we do about it? Well, that's what we're going to talk about later. We can start thinking about it, meditating about it, praying about it ourselves. It's complicated. I realize that. But lots of theology about salvation is somewhat complicated. When you start talking about the human role and divine role, how to grace and works are all. We don't just go, well, we're not going to think about it then. Lots of things are complicated. They're still worth our attention and our time. Let me close then with this, uh, another quote from this book by Norman Wurzba. Um, because we kind of have this idea that we are, um, we are, we're pretty much spirit and matter doesn't matter. And I realize Paul says that we need to be people who, who pursue the spirit, not the flesh. I don't think he's talking about what this, I think he's talking about something else. Um, this idea that, you know, you know, I'm just a disembodied spirit ultimately, and somehow I'm in this body, and one day I'll get to escape it, and I won't have a body anymore, it is belied by so many scriptures. Even the one in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. Um, be thankful that I, I had a whole other like 10-minute point on this. I just skipped it, but I'm just going to do it in 30 seconds. I, you're probably already thinking about that. that the earthly ten, if the earthly tent of our body is breaking down, you know, we, we look forward to the time when we are no longer in this earthly tent. But do you remember the one phrase that nobody ever quotes? And then he uses clothing. He uses tent or tabernacle, dwelling like a tent as our body. What's that? Well, groaning, but he, he also uses the thing about clothing. We're going to get rid of these clothes. He has kind of a mixed metaphor there. And he says, not that we would be unclothed in eternity, but that we would be, anybody remember? Further clothed. He's not talking, it's a third thing. It's like Jesus' body. His resurrected body, which is first fruits of ours. The body that's fit for the new heavens and new earth. It's not a, he's not a ghost, right? He's not a disembodied spirit. Matter still matters. He goes, touch me. He says, see that I'm not a ghost. He eats a fish. Put your hand in my wound, and yet he can walk through walls. So it's a different kind of body. The new heavens and the earth will be very different. But it's described in these material terms, just repaired. I know that's blowing some minds right now, but let the Bible data talk to you. All right. So as we think about our relationship to the rest of the world, the creation around us, here's what Wurzba, however he says his name, it might be Verzba, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> what... Take this as a suggestion to just chew on. To want to flee embodiment and materiality is to, 
is to want to flee the very places where God is at work and always has been. The world. So it's, it's what Jesus came into and took on a body. It is to suffer from, I love this phrase, a failure of incarnational nerve. The impulse to go into materiality and suffering and sin and alienation and to bring reconciliation in real concrete terms. Not escapism. Scripture does not call people to flee their creaturely lives and places. It calls them to participate in God's reconciling and redeeming ways with the whole of creation. Colossians 1, 15-20, where Jesus, we're told, was reconciling in himself everything in the heavens and in the earth. So we can work out what the implications are, but we don't really have the option, in my view, my little two cents, to go, well, I don't have to mess with all that or just revert back into political polarization of the present moment. Let's don't let those people be our theologians. I'm sure there's a lot of good folks on the news networks and filling up your phone with, you know, this crisis, you need to be scared to death of them or them, or no, they, it's them. I'm sure they, a lot of them mean well. Some of them probably laughing all the way to the bank too, truth be told. But are they our spiritual guides? Are they our theologians? Let's let Jesus and Moses and Paul and all the others. Let's let Holy Writ be our guide. Let's let it even frame the way we think about the issues and then see where we go. That to me is way more important than me giving you 14 practical things to go do, to, do today because you're going to revert back to that. We'll work on that later. If you get that in you, you will figure it out. So we need the vision. We need the framing. And that was my attention today. Hope it helped. All right. If we can help you in any way, come to the Lord. Um, we have a baptistry here. Perhaps as somebody who's not a Christian and wants to believes the gospel, believes the claim that Jesus is the Son of God and wants to repent of their sins. And if you'll confess your faith in Him and um, make up your mind to follow Him, um, He doesn't expect you to be perfect. He will take care of your sins, but He just asks that you throw yourself with all your problems, all your hurt, all your mistakes on Him and let His blood cleanse you. And we are happy to baptize you into Christ to do just that. Let him do just that to you right now. If we can help you in any, any other way, prayer, whatever it is, let's all stand and sing with Daniel. <clears throat>